Citizen sleuthing has been around basically since we've been around. Before policing, we policed ourselves. But in 2013, there was a case that fully brought sleuthing into the new millennium, into the internet era. And that case was the Boston bombing. Good afternoon. I'm George Stephanopoulos in New York. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. So the Boston bombing happened during the Boston Marathon of 2013. And it was one of, I believe, the first major acts of terrorism to play out when the Internet was kind of fully formed. That's Rachel Hampton. She's a culture writer at Slate and co-host of the ICYMI podcast. And so what happened is that a bunch of citizen sleuths on Reddit, I believe, decided that they had found the guy who had did it. In a truly early internet moment, people were talking about these things basically as they were happening. A thread on Reddit started blowing up. It had images from the scene that news organizations didn't even have yet. This is a clip from the documentary Reddit Detectives. You can find it on YouTube. There's a way in which gossip is actually not completely different than news reporting. It's just, you know, better vetted gossip. Then another thread started called Find the Boston Marathon Bombers. And this is where things started to take a turn. There, the sharing of photos and videos had a distinct purpose. They were clues. And everyone on Reddit was a detective trying to piece together what happened. Guy with backpack over there, guy on top of building, Illuminati was involved, Jay-Z and Beyonce were behind it. The New York Post, a mainstream news outlet, publishes one of these theories. Specifically, a photo of two men in backpacks. People online theorize that the two men were Middle Eastern. Then, someone focuses on one of them and asks, Have you considered Sunil Tripathi as a suspect? Sunil Tripathi was a 22-year-old Brown University student who had been missing for about a month. All of a sudden, Redditors think it could be him. It gets retweeted by the journalist Luke Russert, by writers for Newsweek and BuzzFeed, by the blogger Perez Hilton. It's on TV in Australia. The thing is, they had the wrong guy. And it just was one of, I believe, the first cases of citizen sleuthing going really, really wrong, in that this man's face was now all over the internet as the perpetrator of this crime when he was not. About a week after the bombing, on April 23, 2013, Sunil's body was found. He died by suicide. But I do think that generations who came up on the internet have this idea that there's all this information at their fingertips and therefore they can find anything they want. Sometimes you just, you can, but it's just not going to satisfy you. Because sometimes there just aren't answers to a lot of questions or the answers are really unsatisfying. This is citizen sleuthing at its worst, where bits and pieces of information are cobbled together to form a hypothesis, a hypothesis that may very well be wrong. 
And what are the consequences when that conspiracy theory gets shared on Reddit or Twitter or TV? But this form of vigilante justice isn't black and white. It's all shades of gray. Because there are times where citizen sleuths get it right. Where they find real clues, real evidence, doing what law enforcement hasn't, or in some cases, can't seem to do. And that's what this episode is about. The best and worst of citizen sleuthing. And what it says about us that we want or sometimes need to take justice into our own hands. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Deanna Thompson has this superhero energy to her. By day, she's an IT professional, and by night, she's a sleuth investigating the internet. She keeps her two lives separate. She even has an alias for her online investigations, Body Movin'. And I just so happened to be listening to Beastie Boys, and I was like, well, I could just change the spelling of that song title to make it my own. And I found this like super cool, like Joan Jett black and white profile picture. And I was like, okay, whatever. Let's just roll with that. You might recognize her name, her alias, or her voice from the 2019 Netflix documentary, Don't F with Cats. When that doc came out, Deanna had been sleuthing for about nine years already. So, how does a 30-something woman who has an average day job and average interests, you know, cats, succulents, true crime, how does she become one of the biggest internet sleuths out there? To answer that question, we go back to 2010. So keeping that in mind, in 2010, my seven-year relationship was coming to an end. And it was my decision. Everybody thinks, oh, her boyfriend broke up with her and she went crazy. That's not true at all. I was leaving him. And, but it was still sad. You know, I was still like scary. You know, I was 30 something years old, wondering what the hell I'm gonna do with my life. You know, I've been with this guy for seven years. Like I'm never gonna have kids now. I've wasted my youth, you know, the whole, all that bullshit, right? 
So I was kind of feeling depressed and needed something to kind of distract me from that bullshit going on in the background. I also have ADHD, so I hyper-focus. So one of those evenings post-breakup, she comes home to an empty place and is trying to get her mind off things. Being a self-proclaimed tech nerd, she goes to her computer. And she starts to snoop on an anonymous message board called 4chan. 4chan in 2009, 2010 was a much different place than it is today. So please don't judge me too harshly. Like, it is much different. Okay, so 4chan of 2010 is not the 4chan of 2022. Now, it's always had a somewhat shady reputation and has become a space for alt-right and QAnon conspiracists. I haven't dabbled in either and am fully okay with that. So thank you, Deanna, for doing that work for us. But anyway, Deanna is on 4chan. She's looking at memes and, you know, other stuff. And then she comes across a photo. And this image got posted of this person. You could just see kind of their hand, and it was kind of like outreached. And on top of this person's hand was a dog head. And the dog was clearly freshly dead. Deanna is an animal lover, a people lover. But she especially holds a soft spot for those who can't defend themselves. Babies, kids, the elderly, and animals. This photo, it stopped her dead in her tracks. And in the background, you could see like kind of like a kitchen area of this picture. So I read that thread and people in the thread were kind of going, we can easily find this person. Like, this is not going to be hard. And I was just watching this. Over the next couple of days, she would check out the threads on the picture. The people in the thread were able to figure out the EXIF data on the photo. EXIF data refers to the data that is embedded in an image file. For example, like, if you click on a photo you have, you might be able to tell the camera model that was used, the time and date it was taken, or settings like the aperture or shutter speed. But another handy thing about EXIF data is sometimes it also includes a geolocation. And so they found out the picture was taken in San Antonio. And from there, MySpace was the thing back then, right? Like, this is how old this was. From there, they went to MySpace and limited their searches to San Antonio teenagers. So they're combing through MySpace at photos these teens post. I know, creepy. But then they see it. That kitchen. They took this picture of the kitchen and kind of warped it to fit into the picture of the dog head and drew, like, lines. I mean, they were triangulating. They were drawing arrows and lines to make sure they matched the tiles match. Deanna is just watching all of this, and she's riveted. She finds herself refreshing the feed every couple of hours, wondering what they would find next. And so they found the person's MySpace, and it was a, a high school kid in San Antonio. You'd think in this situation, maybe they'd call San Antonio police. You know, hand it over to the real investigators. But it's 4chan. And somebody from 4chan decided, I'm going to go knock on that person's door, find out what the hell's going on. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is a minor, probably. You know, I didn't know for sure. 
Like, this is scary. So they went and knocked on the door. We do not recommend this, but they knock on the door and a young woman answers. She's around 17 or 18 years old. She went by the name of Wolfie Blackheart. And she is into taxidermy. Like, it was her hobby. And she said that this dog got hit by a car and the owner said that she could take it for taxidermy. It wasn't the scandal they thought it was. The girl didn't murder the dog. She was a taxidermist. The dog had died. Everything was fine. No need to investigate. So this first run-in on 4chan, it served as a cautionary tale for Deanna of sleuthing gone wrong. So I had that in my mind. A few months later, the vacuum video appeared on 4chan. And just want to preface here, we know this is tough stuff to hear. I really started watching it with no clue on what it was. So it starts out with these kittens on the bed, and they're super cute. And you see a hand, and the, the hand is like petting them and loving on them, and, you know, kissing their little face, just being very loving to these animals. And it's important to keep what I just said in mind. So then it goes into, he's putting them, this person, you can't see their face. He's wearing like a teal hoodie. He's like putting the, the kittens into this bag. And I'm like, the minute he started putting them into the bag, I was like, look. You know, like, okay, stop. And I didn't watch the rest of it. I was like, what the fuck is this, you know? Watching the film, I had to put my hand up during these videos. I couldn't watch them either. What she's describing, the person eventually put these kittens into a bag and vacuum sealed it. They killed the kittens. And it's a lot easier for me to look at pictures than it is to look at a video and not have to hear the bullshit, right? I can listen to the track separately because you can also extract the audio, but I don't want to sit there and watch the video. So that's what I did. She's currently in this huge group of 15,000 people, and they're honestly idiots. When you get 15,000 idiots together, they're just going to do idiotic things. But John Green stood out to me. John Green is another alias, but she and John seem to be on the same page. They were both talking about extracting data from these images. They were taking the situation seriously, not messing around on the board. And they decided to break off and team up. Start a little sleuth group. So December, John Green and I hooked up, teamed up and started working on this separately. But we remained in the big group because, you know, it's information, right? So... Through that big group and reading things that he was posting, because he would be posting in that group, we started to kind of form this analysis of him. I'm going to bring my producer, Joanna Clay, in to dig more into their investigation and the doc. So they start making timelines. They know the video was made in November and it was posted the next month. They document all the usernames this person is posting under. And then one day, they just get a message out of the blue. And the message said, uh, you know, the person you're looking for, his name is Luca Mignotta. And, you know, we're like, who the fuck is Luca Mignotta? And what they do, obviously, is what I think anyone would do as the first step. They Google his name. 
And there's hundreds and hundreds of results. He's this young white guy, kind of flashy, posing and revealing outfits, driving sports cars, jet-setting to Bermuda and Rome. So as Deanna and John are looking at all these photos, at the same time, they're trying to match them up to the very few images they have of the person and the video that they found on the message board. Right. So in the video, there's this brief profile of someone. It looks like it could be a guy, but they're wearing a sweatshirt. They have their hoodie pulled up and you just see the side of their face, but it's really grainy. He had like the floppy brown hair. He had a very similar bone structure to the profile. But the group they were in had actually accused the wrong people, you know, in the past. So this time they wanted to be super careful and essentially double check their work. Yeah, they didn't want to do the whole Boston bomber thing and publicly accuse anyone. So with that, which I think was pretty smart, is they start a secret Facebook group with some people they trust where they can start gathering what they know on Luca, and they called it Luca Intel. And one day, a video pops up. It's this interview with a Canadian newspaper, and it's Luca. And he's there on camera claiming that his reputation is being ruined by this random rumor that he's dating a famous Canadian serial killer. So he's like going on the news saying, please keep my name and this serial killer's name out of your mouth. After I watched the video that was attached to the article, I've been receiving death threats. I started to believe that he used his sock puppet accounts to start creating these rumors himself. So essentially what it boils down to is this man just wanted to be famous. Yeah, and and Deanna realizes this was the motive all along, that he wanted to blow up the internet with those really fucked up videos. But one key thing about this interview and a lot of the stuff actually that they were finding on him is that it was old, you know, before the kitten video. So they really have no clue where he actually is now. Exactly. So they start going through all the photos. They're analyzing all the EXIF data. And then, boom, GPS coordinates. And automatically on the EXIF site, it gives you a map and it puts a pinpoint. And it took me to the Toronto Eaton Shopping Center. Toronto, Canada. And what I find so spectacular is that there's a date and it was the October 25th, 2010. A month later, the kitten video came out. So they're like, he's in Toronto. And I have to say, how John Green finds his apartment is truly wild. He finds this photo of Luca on an apartment balcony, and he starts scrutinizing the photo. And in the distance, you can see a gas station. And he literally just starts looking up you know, in Toronto, where these gas stations are and cross-referencing them with Google Street View images. So, like, looking for this balcony, looking for this petrol station, trying to match them up. And eventually, he finds the building. And they go to the police, the Toronto police. And they actually went out there and knocked on the door. A person answered, and they verified, yes, a person by the name of Luca Magnata had been living there. But he had since moved on to Russia. And we knew that was bullshit. We knew he didn't move to Russia, but we didn't have an address for him. And the police were like, so sorry. So what can we do at that point, right? What can we do? So we dropped it. 
and we kind of just went our separate ways. But then six months later, he releases two new videos. And I don't want to go into details, but they are him, again, torturing and killing animals. And so now they're back on the case. And one of his socks posted on this, like, DJ's Facebook page. You're so hot, is what he said. And I was like, why is Luca posting on this, like, little-known DJ in Montreal? The hell? And by the way, when she says sock, she said sock a couple times now. That's short for sock puppet, which basically means a fake account. So from that point, we knew he was in Montreal. And then he had, at this point, was starting to make threats to people. You know, Alex West, he had told he was going to murder the humans. He had made Leslie and Downey Facebook profiles, which Leslie and Downey was a victim of the Moors murderers. And his fake accounts are saying this stuff. So we call Montreal and we're like, you guys have a psycho on your hands. Like, it's happening. And they were like, you know, you guys live in the States. If you want to talk to us, you're going to have to come to Montreal. But they're in a tough predicament because at this point, they believe Luca killed animals and they have all this internet evidence. But the cops in Montreal are like, we don't know what any of this information is. Like, what are IP addresses? This is 2011. And I don't know what the police can do, like, but maybe like a welfare check or like clearly something is wrong with this person. He needs somebody to knock on his door and maybe that would have stopped it. Maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe it wouldn't have done shit. I don't, we'll never know because it never happened. So they are hoping they can actually get ahead of what eventually happened. Yeah, they were hopeful, but unfortunately, you know, what happened happened because a couple months later, June Lin was murdered. And if you watch the doc, you can get more details. But essentially, Luca had posted this ad on Craigslist looking for someone to help him make a movie. June Lin, a 33-year-old international student from China, responded. Luca invited him over to his apartment on this idea that he was going to make a video. And so this video gets posted. And at the time, no one knows who is in the video because at this moment, Jun Lin hadn't been identified yet. First thing you see is Jun Lin laying on the bed. And Luca loves on him. He strokes his face. You know, he kind of pets him. And the minute I saw that, I was like, motherfucker. You know what I mean? Like, my stomach was in my throat. In the days following the murder, Deanna, John, their group, they're, they're going crazy. I mean, this is an emotional roller coaster. It's their worst nightmare. And all they wanted all along is to find Luca. And Luca was still out there. And he wanted attention. Good evening. We begin tonight with developing and sinister news from the nation's capital, where police are investigating two mysterious packages addressed to the headquarters of the Conservative Party. A receptionist opened the blood-soaked box and found a severed foot. And at that time, we also didn't know what post offices he had used to mail the feet legs, or the hands and feet. So we were trying to figure out, like, where could he have dropped the head? Where could he have put the head? Because we really wanted Jun Lin to be returned whole. Like, that was important to us. 
Deanna takes a break. She goes to sleep. And when she wakes up, she has a million text messages. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I thought maybe something had happened to somebody I cared about. Like I was, and I get online and first thing I see is a link to a, a YouTube video. And it happened quick. This YouTube video got released quick. And it was a Luca getting arrested. I still watch that video to this day. It's like the best video I've ever seen. I mean, truly what a journey. I know. And when she tells this story, you can't help but feel, you know, the anxiety and the fear that they felt that this horrible premonition they had, you know, it happened. And they felt this sense of responsibility to help catch Luca and get some justice for June Lin. Exactly. And we'll get more into the impact of this story and what justice means to sleuths like Deanna next. Citizen sleuthing. It's not for everyone. And listening to Deanna's story, I'm sure there's people who see the good that they're trying to police a place on the internet that's truly not policed. It's the Wild West out there. And it helps when you're an internet nerd in the early days of the web. But there's the tricky stuff, too. Getting enmeshed in a murder investigation? How does the victim's family feel about it? One of the reasons we decided to do the documentary, because we didn't want to do the documentary, because we didn't want to give Luca any public attention. But well, the reason we decided to do it was Benjamin, who is Jun Lin's best friend, um, said he would do it. And so that made us feel better from a victim perspective because we didn't want, it's important that Junlin have a voice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's something that's really missing from true crime is the victim. And while it wasn't perfect, I think we did the best we could. Like we said, citizen sleuthing isn't black and white. It's all shades of gray. At CrimeCon, Deanna and John led a panel on how to use their methods responsibly. Whenever they're investigating, the goal is to put together a dossier, basically a folder full of evidence that they can then hand off to the police or FBI. They don't want to get in the way. They want to help. They know they're not professionals. But since the case, they've been able to meet professionals. Professionals who have complimented their work. I got to have a really good conversation with Jim Clementi, who worked for the behavioral science unit with the FBI. And he's like one of the producers for Criminal Minds. And he's really a smart guy. And I was able to talk to him. And I had written like a 17-page amateur analysis of Luca and before he committed the murders. But it was all very amateurish. You know, I mean, I'm not an expert, right? And he was like, you were 100% spot on. Since Luca, they've gone on to investigate more cases. Their group has gone legit. It's called the Animal Beta Project, and they investigate videos of animal cruelty on the internet. In 2012, they solved an animal cruelty case in 48 hours. And then that went to trial, and they got 50 years in federal prison. And it was just like, wow. They felt this sense of relief, this sense of justice. We spoke earlier about Deanna's soft spot for the vulnerable, for those who can't fight back. And there's a reason for that. When I was 20, 
I think 23, I, something happened to me and I don't want to talk about it, but I never like got justice from it. So I've always had this sense of not bitterness, but missing something like missing or wanting justice for things that can't speak for themselves. Like you don't fuck with children, you don't fuck with animals and you don't fuck with the elderly. You just don't do it. This feeling that she had been looking for, this work was starting to fill that hole. Sleuthing, is that my calling? Maybe, I don't know. But I I feel like it provides a service. I don't get paid for it or nothing like that. So so I I definitely, I'm passionate about it because I'm doing it for free. And I'm doing it a lot. And I'm doing it, you know, I'm spending hours and hours and hours in life, but I'm never going to get back. But, you know, if it could save any lives, I'm going to do it. Deanna and the Animal Beta Project spend a lot of time focused on the warning signs, the red flags. But like we saw in the case of Luca, these red flags are hard for cops to stay on top of. I mean, think about it. Like, the internet, like, they can't monitor the internet. They can barely monitor the block their police station is on. There's no, like, national monitor the internet for crazy people. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing like that. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying there should be, because I don't know if that would be like some sort of violation of civil rights or whatever, but like there's no, nobody doing this. Most police departments don't have the people or the resources to go deep on these cases like Deanna does. They need to know that there's a crime committed in their jurisdiction before they can really jump in. They don't have departments for this kind of shit. I had to explain to them what a freaking IP address was. Like, they have no concept. None. And especially in these small towns. Like, what the fuck are they supposed to do? It's horrible. When Deanna calls police stations and says, hey, you have a resident in your community torturing animals and posting videos online, they still brush her off. That needs to change. It So that has obstructed my view a little bit about law enforcement. And whether or not they want to change or not, change is coming. As boomers retire, I'm sorry, I hate to say it, but as boomers retire, you know, Gen X and millennials and Gen Z and whatnot, are, they're going to take this more seriously. I know it. I absolutely know it. Because of the documentary, most people associate Deanna from Don't F with Cats and associate her with Luca's story. And sometimes that's hard. She doesn't want to give Luca attention. But she does want to remember June Lin. Did June Lin's family ever reach out to you? June Lin's associates and friends and whatnot uh, set up a foundation that we donated money to and whatnot, but we never communicated with them directly. Listen, at the end of the day, they lost their son. They don't give a fuck about cats, and I don't blame them. Do you know what I mean? I don't even know if they know we exist. I do, they know now probably because of the documentary and Benjamin's best friend was in the documentary. And, you know, and I thought he was great and was able to convey how what a great person Jin Lin was. Like, it, it, oh my God. Okay. Jin Lin came from China. He was in Canada going to school. And his mom always worried about him. Are you being safe? Are you okay? And he would tell her, Mom, I'm fine. This is such a safe country. You don't need to worry. And I'm like, and I think about that all the time. I think about that all the time. You know, he he was a good dude. And he was 
like smiling all the time and just happy. And he was so grateful to be in Canada. He was so grateful for his education. It's hard for me to talk about someone. It's really hard. Yeah. And that's why I want to stop. I understand. These stories that capture our imagination, that sometimes drive hundreds of keyboard warriors to search for the quote-unquote truth, they are also about the worst moment in some people's lives. Victims, their families, their friends. This isn't just entertainment. And Deanna realizes that. She never takes it for granted. Even if others do. Next time on Spectacle, Scams, the scam podcast that started it all. You find people and he would uh, seduce them, swindle them, and, uh, and then terrorize them. And this went on for years and years. Why can we just not get enough of them? Some people would say some ways a victimless crime because people agreed to do things, you know, of their own volition in a sense. Um, so I think that's part of why people get so fascinated with this form of true crime, because it doesn't feel quite as icky as being obsessed with murder or something very gruesome where a person dies. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design is Josh Hahn. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.